what a wonderful blessing it is to be joining you once again for this last installment of our studies together in Second Samuel. Before we get started, please let's have a word of prayer. Our Lord, our God, who is so awesome, who is so great, so merciful and so gracious, is indeed, Lord, that we're so grateful to you. Allowing us again, Lord God, once again to be able to sit and study your word and glean a better understanding, as we often say, Lord, of your word, to know how to live on this earth. And we're so grateful that we have your Old Testament to look at, to look through, to see your servant David and how human he is, just like us, Lord. Oftentimes, Lord, we read of your children in the Old Testament, and and some of them just seem so far above who we are, Lord, as human beings. But we're often reminded, as we have been here in Second Samuel, First and Second Samuel, how human David and how human Paul, excuse me, Saul and uh, Jonathan and all those other men and women that we read about in these two great books of Samuel, how human they are just like us. We thank you, Lord God, for loving us as you do. I know we don't deserve you, Lord. We don't deserve your love. We ask that you forgive us of our sins. Despite us, Lord God, you've sent Jesus because you love us and you have loved us. So despite the way that we are and who we are, you've given us another chance. You give us another chance, not just every day, but all the time, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Please help us as we study today and as we end our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So it is indeed great, again, as I said before, to be with you today. And today is so much to cover between Second uh, Samuel chapter 21 through Second Samuel chapter 24. And as you've seen, hopefully through these lessons that we've sat through together, that I've taken a different approach on, in, in instructing these lessons, because I'm hoping that you have been reading the scriptures, that you have been sitting down and contemplating your own questions and the things that I'm bringing to you, I have brought to you and that uh, I'm bringing you today will help you get through life a little bit better. Today, we will uh, cover three three different lessons in one because this is our last time uh, together before the next quarter starts. And today, uh, we will start with finding God when I'm too tired to fight. Our key verse today is coming from Second Samuel chapter 21 and verse 15, where it says, Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. He was born on January 17, 1942, and he's known as one of the greatest boxers of all time. As a matter of fact, he was not shy about telling anyone who would listen uh, that he was indeed the greatest of all time. Many of you who were around during that time know his name was Cassius Clay. And his first professional fight came in October 1960 at the age of 18. Now, prior to this, he was a two-time Golden Globe 
champion, excuse me, golden gloves uh, champion and an Olympic gold medalist. Incidentally, we have a golden glove, golden glove uh, champion within our midst. And uh, he happens to preach for us for a living. In his own words, he shook up the world. That's that's uh, Cassius Clay, I mean. In 1964, when he defeated Sonny Liston to become the youngest heavyweight champion in history. In 1965, you would know that he changed his name to Muhammad Ali and he con- and conquered to shake, uh, excuse me, and continued to shake up the world with wins over Floyd Patterson, Jerry Quarry, and a combat win at the age of 32 that nobody thought he could win over George Foreman in 1974 because George had beat him um, before. He was a quite a fighter. And even though Ali won, George's blows were damaging to say the least, and he began a slow decline. In a 2009 ESPN interview, uh, it released a documentary called Muhammad and Larry, which chronicled his next-to-last fight. In October 1980, the 38-year-old Ali fought Larry Holmes in one of the saddest fights in U.S. boxing history. The fight was scheduled to go uh, about 15 rounds. But it only went to 10. Ali only landed 10 solid punches in those 10 rounds and was knocked to the canvas on numerous occasions. His corner people did the only thing they could do. They threw in the towel after the 10th round. Larry Holmes cried in his corner, saddened that the legend had fallen. A once mighty warrior was too tired to continue. David fought his fight, first fight, when he was only 17 years old. The knockout victory is recorded in 1 Samuel 17, which Scott uh, helped us through uh, a few weeks ago. He, took, uh, he too shook up the world when he took down the Philistine giant, Goliath, with a single blow. David was legendary among the Jewish people. He was indeed a giant killer, a giant slayer, as we say, who went on to be one of the greatest warriors, generals and kings uh, Israel had ever seen. Yet in Second Samuel, chapter 21, we see one of David's last battles. And it could well have been one of the saddest stories in all of scripture. This time he faced four more giants, all related to Goliath. But he was exhausted, according to the text. He had fought so many battles that he simply could not muster the strength to go another round. Now, I ask you, have you ever felt that way? You know, you've slain your giants in your life, but a battle comes your way that you're just not ready to handle. You ever felt that way? Have you ever come to a point in your faith walk that you're just too tired to fight? That's where David was. He was just too tired to fight. But David, like Muhammad Ali, had some people in his corner who cared deeply about him. And rather than throw in the towel, they went to battle on behalf of David. You have to understand that David is now in his 60s as we're reading this. He faces not one, but four giants. But again, he does not face them alone. God provided him support when he needed it most. 
The support came from Abishai, Sibbekei, Elhanan, and Jonathan, the son of Shemai, or Shema. This, um, that's what God does. When we are too tired to fight, he surrounds us with people who can help us all in our battles. One of the smartest things David ever did, listen to this, he let these men help. The simple fact of life is this. Sometimes you get tired, physically, emotionally, and spiritually tired. Sometimes we refer to this as burnout. And there are probably some of you listening right now to this lesson who are just tired. You're facing a spiritual battle and you're just tired. We learn from David what we need to do when we are too tired to fight. But first, we must find some good corner people. Ask any successful leader his formula for success. And somewhere in the, in the equation, you will see that they surrounded themselves with people that they can count on. David was surrounded by people he could count on. Muhammad Ali had people who were looking out for his best interests. Well, in the church, God has surrounded us with people we should be able to count on. Acts chapter 2 paints a picture of a people that we uh, that were devoted to one another's well-being. They had each other's back. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Acts 2.42 and verse 46 as well. Uh, excuse me, verse 44 as well. We need to cultivate deep relationships with God's people. Secondly, we must communicate our weariness. David's weariness was obvious. Whether or not David communicated his weariness verbally, we don't know. But it was obviously communicated. We often try to hide our weariness, don't we? The invitation will be extended at the end of the sermon tomorrow, Lord willing, and we'll stand there spiritually exhausted, not asking for help because we're too proud or too scared. Paul tells us to carry one another's burdens in the Galatians 6 2. Well, how can we help someone carry it, carry it if we don't know um, it's there? One family receives such help. As they raise a child with a rare disease that caused them to be born without any eyes or, or a nose. There was just a large hole where their, those things were supposed to be. When the doctors had told them that the baby would not live much longer, they were speaking with their preacher, planning a funeral. The family was handling the whole situation with the strength of God. They were not angry with God. They were not ready to give up their faith. When the preacher asked them about um, their strength they replied if we or if it were not for the relationships that we have formed with our friends here in the congregation we could never have made it through this you see they had built meaningful relationships with some of the, the members of the congregation and they were there for each other they communicated their weariness and then allowed others to help them fight we could learn a lesson from that Thirdly, we must allow others to fight for us. We can be stubborn sometimes, can't we? I'm going to let that sink in a little bit. We can be stubborn. We simply don't think we need the help. We might feel all but defeated. But 
we never allow ourselves to show others our weakness. David realized that he couldn't win the battle alone. Then the mighty king humbled himself and allowed others to fight on his behalf. It takes humility to admit weakness, doesn't it? It is better to admit weakness and ask for help than to pretend strength and suffer defeat. David's wise son later wrote, though one may overpower or be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes 4.12. There's a flip side to this lesson. Now I'll tell you that there will be times when we see others trying to fight battles they can't win. Now Ali's corner men knew he was outmatched, but they also knew that he was a proud man. So they had to be willing to step in for him when he was too weak to step in for himself. We learn from this story the value of accepting friendship and the value of extending friendship. Kind of talked about that last week as well. We need to be the corner people for our brothers and sisters in Christ. There are people in your life today that need you to step in and help them fight. Do you see them? Are you looking for them? I would tell you, open your eyes then if you're if you haven't seen them or if you're not looking for them, get to work. We all need to be looking for the symptoms of spiritual exhaustion in others. Changes in demeanor, change in worship attendance, change, changes in attitudes. When we see those changes, we need to ask. And once we have asked, listen, allow them to communicate their weariness. Often we are so busy trying to tell our story, we don't listen to theirs. Once we have heard their plea for help, Put on the gloves and fight for them. We are fighting for one another's souls. Too often we are quick to throw in the towel for someone. But we are, uh, are, but are we willing to roll up our sleeves and fight? David needed these men. He would not have survived if they had not come to his aid. Someone is depending on you for their spiritual survival. Some questions for us um, as we continue on in our lesson. What led up to David's exhaustion? I want you to think of a time uh, when you have been spiritually exhausted. Who came to your aid? Why is it so difficult to admit that we need help with a spiritual struggle? What lessons did we learn from the four men who stepped up to help David? Why are we often hesitant to help others in their spiritual battles? Sometimes when someone is sharing negative experiences, others will interject a time they went through uh, something much worse. Why is this inappropriate? And I'm telling you, it is. How can we share our own experiences without making theirs seem insignificant? Now, I ask these questions and I'm reading I'm reading each one line by line or because we have folks that are listening to this lesson via our podcast that we also have available for you if you can't watch. As we move on, we want to talk about finding God in the rearview mirror. A key verse from key verse from uh let's see second Samuel chapter twenty two starting at verse two. The scripture says the Lord is my rock, my fortress, 
and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my savior. From whom violent men, you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. Second Samuel 22 verses two through four. You ever have a, how I want to say this. Imagine you have a, a, an older car or a new car, but older car. And for some reason, your, your side um, mirrors fall off. But instead of you fixing them right now, kind of like I see around here sometimes when people have their headlights out and they don't fix them, uh, you don't fix it because, well, you have time. And then a few weeks later, your your rearview mirror falls and and you don't fix that. Let me ask you, is it hard to drive at night with no rearview or side view mirrors? Is it is it hard at all at any time, but especially at night? It is difficult to move forward when you can't see behind you. Would you agree? This statement holds true about many things. Driving, education, family growth, and it certainly holds true about our walk with God. It is difficult to move forward when you can't see behind you, certainly proved to be true in the life of David. Second Samuel chapter 22 finds David in what could be referred to as a reflective moment. He is looking back on his life. And as he looks back, he remembers his accomplishments, his struggles his joys, his battles, and his victories. As we look into the rearview mirror of his life, excuse me, he looks into the rearview mirror of his life, he notices something. He notices that God was there for every step of all the lessons we have learned from the life of David throughout all these weeks. There is not one greater than this. For us to continue to move forward in our Christian walk, we must be able to look back and see God's faithfulness in our past. This will give us hope for the future. Now, see, David chose to finish out his life with a psalm of praise to God. In it, he reflected on the blessings of God he had encountered along the way. One of those blessings we can find in chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, and that's protection. A gentleman named Isaac Singer once confessed, I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time. And so I pray all the time. Where do we turn when we're in trouble? When life hits us hard, where does our help come from? There are times when we can look all look back and say, if it weren't for God's protection, and you fill in the blank. Maybe I would say that I've been in big trouble. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 121 that our help comes from the Lord. And he reminds us that he does not let our foot slip and is watching over us constantly. We're so grateful for that. To find peace in our lives, we must cast ourselves upon God without any reservations. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, James 1, 6-8 reminds us. And we must trust in God to experience the protection of God. David made mistakes, yes, but he was able to experience God's protection because he trusted. Another blessing that 
David sees as he looks back, as we find in uh, chapter 17, excuse me, verses 17 through 20, is salvation. David realized who it was that rescued him and from what? God had rescued him from his enemy time and time again. As we look back on our own lives, we see that God has rescued us time and time again, don't we? Most importantly, he rescued us from our sin through Christ's death on the cross. Second Corinthians 5.21. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we're so grateful to you that you have rescued us from our sin through Christ's death on the cross. Thank you, Lord. We ask again that you forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. The important question to answer, however, is why does God rescue us? David said that God rescued him because he delighted in me. Second Samuel twenty two twenty. God delights in us. Don't you know? Why do we protect our children from things that would do them harm? Because they are our pride and joy. If you want to see a typical uh, nonviolent man get violent, just mess with his kids. God has proven over and over that when people mess with his children, he protects them. We are his pride and joy. Another thing, a third thing that uh, or blessing that David sees as he looks back in a rearview mirror of his life, as it were, we find in verses 24 to 31 is faithfulness. Verses 24 to 25 can be a bit confusing. Let's turn there if you haven't have open already. We're looking at Second Samuel chapter 22. In verses 24 and 25, the scripture there says, I was also blameless before him and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness or cleanness, cleanness, excuse me, in his eyes. David describes himself as blameless, righteous and clean. Now, when we read these words, we may begin to wonder, are we talking about the same guy here? Now, in previous chapters, we have seen that David is anything but blameless. Remember Bathsheba and, and Uriah, for example? The key phrase here is my uh, cleanness is in his sight. The fact is David was not clean, but neither are we. But through his grace, that is God's grace and his forgiveness. God makes us clean. He is faithful to forgive. Thank God. He is faithful to make us righteous because the righteousness comes from him. It is his gift to us. Romans 6, 23, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. A fourth blessing that David sees as he's looking back on his life. We find in verses 33 to 34. Uh, of second Samuel chapter 22. Can you think of a time uh, in your life when you were oblivious to God's working in your life? Well, there's direction that David sees. You had no idea what God was doing and how he was leading, but now you can look back and see his hand in every aspect. Can you see God's direction in your rearview mirror as David did? God had paved a way for David. Yes, David had free will. He could have said no, but he chose to say yes to God. 
It is obvious in studying David's life that he took some wrong turns along the way, just like us. Isn't it assuring to know that every time we take an exit ramp from God's purpose, he makes another on ramp. For those of y'all that don't drive, when you're driving on the road and you want to get off, uh, there might be an off ramp, a little side road that you know goes down by the bridge or just off, off the interstate. And then you realize, hmm, I probably shouldn't have got off. Well, there's a way for you to get right back on right in front of you. And God provides that way for us. Another blessing, a fifth blessing that we see that David sees as he's looking back on his life is found in 2 Samuel 22 verses 40 through 41. And that's victory. David knew that he had won many victories, but he also knew that it was God who had given him the victory. From the time he was a young man facing a giant, he knew it was not about his own strength, but God's. When we read the story of David, It should make us walk around with our heads held high, realizing that God can use anyone. There are times that we are tempted to focus on our weaknesses rather than God's strength. When we do that, we have forgotten that God has already achieved the victory. We win. Remember the beautiful victory passages of first Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, in the latter verses reminds us that the battle has been fought and the victory has been won. You can see that in verses 50 through 58. No matter how difficult your days may become, no matter what people do to you, no matter what happens in life, there is no situation, no person and no problem that can ever take away the victory that you have in Christ. Lastly, David sees deliverance. Second Samuel 22, 44 and 45. David wants everyone who would ever read these words to know that God was in control of his life. And this song, uh, excuse me, if this song had a title, it would be it's not about me. When we look in our rearview mirrors, we see that it was God who brought us deliverance. Even when we put ourselves in bondage, our enemy is Satan. The bondage is sin. But God, through the blood of Jesus, has offered us deliverance. Immediately, this is a difficult concept to grasp because everything about the American way of life teaches us that you get what you earn. Praise be to God that he does not operate on the American work ethic. We can never work enough to earn our deliverance. Only by the grace of God can we achieve the victory. The battle has been fought. And one, when we look in the rearview mirror and see God's activity in our own lives, there is only one proper response, worship. In the final verses of this chapter, we find David praising God in worship. A worshipful heart is an aware heart. An awareness of God's presence in your life, uh, your life story brings hope. And this hope brings out a desire to worship that no struggles can quench. There are many good definitions for worship, but one of the best says that worship is all that I am responding to all that is God. All that I am responding to all that is God. This unquenchable need to worship intensifies when we realize that objects in the rearview mirror are larger than they appear. If you look on your car's mirror, That's what it says, right? Yet our finite minds cannot fathom just how present he really is. As big as 
God looks in the rearview mirror. In reality, he is even bigger. David recognized just how big God was. And as a result, he shouted out, therefore, I will praise you, O Lord. God promises his children that he will never leave us or forsake us. When we look in our rearview mirrors, we see what David saw, God. And when we see him, there is only one proper response. Therefore, I will praise you, O Lord. Some questions for us. I want you to consider the statement. It is difficult to move forward when you cannot see behind you. Is this accurate? How do you explain your answer then as it relates to Philippians 3, 12 through 14? Number two of the six things, protection, salvation, faithfulness, direction, victory and deliverance that David saw in his rearview mirror. Which one or ones do you see most clear uh, easily? How does has the con- how, how does the concept of you get what you earn distorted our ability to comprehend grace of God, the grace of God? Looking back on your life, can you see times when God was working in your life in ways that you could not see at that time? Lastly, we were going to look at finding God when I forget he is in control. A key verse that we'll take is from 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 10, where it says, David was conscious uh, stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. During a football game in the 1970s, San Diego, uh, the San Diego Chargers quarterback Dan Fouts and the team were having a particularly bad day. They probably should have moved to Las Vegas uh, a lot earlier than he had. With 10 minutes remaining in the game, the San Diego uh, Chargers were down 14-0. With frustrations high, the coach pulled Fouts and put uh, in the backup quarterback Bobby Douglas. Many of, you, many of you all remember him. Douglas strapped on his helmet with anticipation and bolted onto the field toward the huddle. Suddenly, he stopped in his tracks, turned to the coach and yelled, Coach, uh, do you want me to win the game or just tie it? <laughs> what a great statement. Do you have that kind of faith in God? From what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 22, it appeared that David did. David was nearing the end of his life. He had faced many ups and downs, but by now you would think David's faith would be strong enough to handle anything. He was able to proudly proclaim that God uh, was his rock and his fortress, which is the theme of the entire second Samuel uh, lessons that we've been covering. But only a short time later, he forgot who was in control. In second Samuel chapter 24, we find David facing a battle that seemed overwhelming. It appears that David did what any wise commander would do. He began to assess the strength of his army by counting the number of soldiers. However, David's count brought God's anger. David soon discovered that he would have to choose one of three punishments, a three-year famine, 
a three month uh, drubbing by his enemies or a three day plague on the on the land. These are strong punishments just for counting. What's so bad about counting? Isn't that just a good strategy? God was not angry at David for counting his men. He was angry because David did not count on him. David forgot who was in control. God had promised David that he would multiply his troops 100 times over. But David commanded Joab to conduct the census just to make sure. He wanted proof that God had kept his word. He was questioning the faithfulness of the God that he had just praised in songs. The dangerous thing about David's sin here is that it is a sub, uh, it was a subtle sin, but all sin is bad. We too can become guilty of it without even knowing it. We go to worship assembly, assembly on Sunday and we sing, I will call upon the Lord. Then when it comes to a crucial battle in our life, we start counting. What resources do I have to go through this? The truth is, Sometimes we place more trust in our ability to count than in God's ability to conquer. We would do well to remember the words of Paul to the church at Rome. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Romans twelve three. David was allowing the number of people he had on his side to dictate whether or not he would fight. He had God. The same man who destroyed a giant with a rock and a sling was now making sure he had all the resources necessary for a victory. It doesn't make sense. Well, until we take a long, hard look at ourselves. What we may call caution or strategy, God may very well call faith, faithlessness. Think about our conscience. When the counting came to an end, David saw his faithfulness or faithlessness. No prophetic parable was needed to get him to see his sin this time. It was clear as a uh, as a crystal. He was conscious stricken, stricken verses um, 10 in chapter 24. Look at the consequences of David and us. David's problem became even clearer when God, through the prophet Gad, shared with him the consequences of his sin. The consequences of David's sin would be felt by his people. And in fact, consequences almost always ripple outward and affect the lives of innocent people. David could not be allowed to pay for his sin alone. His people would suffer as well. And then there's the choice. The prophet Gad approached David with, with three choices of his punishment. David was unable to make a decision, but did express a concern to the prophet. He said he would prefer to place himself on the mercies of God than to fall into the hands of men. From the punishment that flowed, it appears that God decided that, it, that the three-year famine and a three-month run from his enemies would expose David to greater risk from men uh, than the three-day plague would. God chose to deal with the sin quickly and harshly, but David's enemies had no time to mount an attack during the nation's weakened condition. Even God is blessing there. And then there's the confession we see from David. When David saw the devastation brought upon the people as a result of his sin, he immediately confessed and begged God to stop his angel. When the plague stopped at the threshing floor of a man named Aruna, David went there and offered a sacrifice to God. 
Now, there is a a brother that I know about who several years ago was asked to speak at a youth rally. And he was assigned this very text in 2 Samuel chapter 24. A few weeks before the youth rally, he met one of the teens from the congregation that he was going to be speaking at. When she was told that he was speaking, she said, are you sure? And he confirmed it again. And with a serious look on her face, she said, oh, I wasn't sure. She named the youth minister. Um, he usually gets good speakers. And then she quickly corrected herself and said, I mean, I mean, uh, he gets more popular speakers. Well, the damage was done. That phrase kept playing over and over in his mind as the weeks were to come. Now, this brother was fresh out of school and he didn't know how he was supposed to measure up to some of those more popular uh, speakers. He was days away from the youth rally. And every time he started his sermon, it just didn't seem like it was good enough. So he called one of his mentors and explained his distress. He asked the mentor, asked him, what topic did they assign you again? He replied, when I forget who's in control, he said the phone uh, fell silent. And then he said, I get your point. How many of us have done the very same thing? We face a crucial battle and we look everywhere but to God for help. We look to our own ability to and or to others. The whole time God is looking at us saying, when I make you a promise, I don't have to count. Just trust me. You don't have to count. Just trust me. God was calling David to trust him. And although his faith wavered, as does ours, his life ended on a strong note. His last act was giving of his wealth and praising God for his ability to give. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Every time, or excuse me, everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. First Chronicles 29, 14. And with his last words, he called his people to praise the Lord. He remembered who was in control. He found his rock and his fortress. Many years ago, a private yacht was caught in a violent storm and the ship was destroyed. And the only survivor was a little boy who was swept uh, up by the rock waves onto a rock. He clung to this rock all night until the Coast Guard was able to find him. One of the rescuers asked him, well, how did you survive? Weren't you cold and weren't you scared? The little boy answered and said, I knew the rock was sturdy and strong. No matter how stormy it got, I survived if I had just held on to the rock. My question to you as we close out these lessons, are you holding on to the rock? Is he your fortress? I encourage you to trust our faithful God to save you from your enemies and even from your own foolish decisions. He lives and should be exalted by all who believe. I'll ask questions for the lessons, uh, the lessons that we've been studying. When you face a crisis, what are you tempted to count? How do you find the balance between cautious planning and bold, aggressive faith? How does the temptation to lose faith change with each stage of your life? Youth, middle age, old age. Um, I don't know what other ages you want to talk about, but any time in your life. 
Was there a time when your sins had a negative impact on people around you? David chose to take his punishment straight from God rather than from men. Do you agree with his strategy? Why? Why not? Lastly, in what ways has God been a rock and a fortress in your life? Thank you again for joining me during this time. Next week, we'll start a new series of lessons brought by our brother, Bob Lawrence. I look forward to worshiping with you um, this Sunday. You all be blessed and be a blessing to others that you come in contact with.